Besides who you end up in life partnership, who you end up in business partnership with is probably one of the most important decisions that you can make. And I would actually recommend approaching it with the same degree of seriousness and thoughtfulness that you would who you end up in life partnership with. That was Swathi Malivarapu, co-founder of Insight.org and one of the many inspiring speakers that we have here at the Rhodes Ventures Forum 2019, which is a packed full two days that convenes current Rhodes scholars, Rhodes alumni, Atlantic fellows, and leaders in the international business community to be able to discuss innovation, entrepreneurship, and also investment, as well as to explore how we can create ventures that are looking to improve the world. In this episode, Find out more about Swathi Malivarapu's life story and her involvement with innovative ventures. We'll be speaking about her time at google.org and the startups Quid and Square, her current venture Insight.org, which she co-founded along with her husband, Matt Rogers, and how to decide who to go into business with. really good to have you here Swathi at the third annual Rhodes Ventures Forum and especially to have you here for the podcast to talk about your life story and your involvement with Innovative Ventures. So since we're at an event organised by Rhodes Trust I thought we'd start by talking about your time as a Rhodes Scholar here at the University of Oxford where you were studying for an MPhil in economic history. So tell me a bit about your time at Oxford, what was it like being a Rhodes Scholar? Well, it feels like it was a very long time ago, but I suppose it wasn't all that long ago. I was here from 2005 until 2007, and my observations on my time here was um, overwhelmingly positive. I think the best thing about it was the tremendous community of young, very bright, talented people with a range of interests who uh, gathered together regularly at Rhodes House to talk about a shared interest in making the world better. Although it was always, it was, I think, very uh, informative to understand the range of perspectives and types of work that folks were pursuing in the Rhodes community in pursuit of that larger goal. So for some folks, that was a path in the hard sciences. For others, there was a very obvious path in entrepreneurship. For others, it was a study in pursuit of social systems and systems of justice. Um, so I think it was a community of people that pushed my thinking. Uh, that offered a really wonderful um, sense of camaraderie and companionship. And it's, a number of us have continued to stay together as friends and also find opportunities to do work together um, in the years since. So that was a really great part of it. Um, and the flip side of it was the academic experience at Oxford, which I think was really interesting. Um, lots of very talented students. I think at the time, um, maybe slightly more uh, mixed set of experiences in the quality of instruction and uh, structure of the academic programs, but I know that the university has really undertaken pretty systematic improvements and investments in the resources available um, for a number of its academic programs. So I think it's really different today than it was even 15 years ago. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear those two sides of the story as such. 
And so having been to Harvard first, where you got your AB in development studies, and then to Oxford for your MPhil, when you left Oxford, did you feel like there were lots of different paths out there for you? Or did you have a pretty clear idea of what you wanted to do? I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just knew that I was done studying. I originally started at Oxford with the idea that I would pursue a DPhil, but after a year or two of study, I was just feeling the itch to get out into the world and do something. Um, I, I felt very sat, overly sated on the side of studying and uh, desired very much to get out and, and learn a little bit about how to build and create things in the world. Uh, and so um, I had no idea how to do that. And if you can believe it, that was a time, I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but 2007, it wasn't a very common path to go to the West Coast in the U.S. and look underneath the hood of what was happening in the startup and technology ecosystem. Um, there weren't many of us that ventured into that world and chose to do it. Um, it was it was a little bit more off the beaten path. And so I just, um, on a whim, moved out to San Francisco and thought, I famously told my family and friends that I'd be there for a year and then go back for law school. But here we are, 15 years later. <laughs> so after you left Oxford, you started to work for Google.org, mm -hmm. which is a nonprofit group within Google. At the time, they actually weren't a nonprofit group. They had a much more innovative proposition, which was to focus on driving parts of Google's core business and core capability and focus it on social impact. So the very way that .org was structured was as more than a corporate philanthropy, and that was so much of the appeal at, in its first iteration of working on that team to figure out, well, what did it mean to have an entity that was supposed to set aside 1% of the company's profits and quote-unquote 1% of its core capabilities and talent and people to work on big, hard problems? And so your next move from Google.org was towards the startup world. Did you see that as a move that was connected to the work you were already doing, or was this something in a new direction? It was related because, of course, we weren't, it wasn't work in a vacuum at Google.org, it was work at Google. Right? So we were at the time, it was sitting inside of one of the most successful cutting-edge technology companies of that period, and um, you could, I couldn't help but also discover and find excitement and joy and delight in the best of what very talented technology entrepreneurs were doing. And if you looked underneath the hood, a lot of them were supremely motivated, not just by building great tools and making money, but really because they thought they were creating things that were going to change the world for the better. And so I decided after my time at Google.org that I wanted to explore that a little bit more. And I was in a really great place to do that because the highest density of those kinds of new enterprises were getting off the ground in that small little part of the world. And so you went on to become part of the startups Quid and Square. Mm -hmm. So tell me a bit about Quid and Square. Yeah, Quid was a really fascinating company, particularly at that time, because it was a core group of folks that were connected by our time at Oxford that were also on to this idea of data analytics and the power of big data, which you have to remember in like 2008, 2009, um, we were just at the beginning of the conversation and major waves of innovation around technologies that were um, harnessing those applications. And so um, for me, it was a wonderful way to learn by doing in building a company 
with people that I really liked and uh, had shared some great formative experiences with. Um, and also for me to figure out what it was that I was uniquely capable of and good at in the context of building a technology company. Because I think I'd often assume that you had to have quote unquote technical skills. Mm. And I, that wasn't my expertise. I mean, I wasn't, I didn't know how to write code and I hadn't studied engineering. But I think I had an intuit, intuitive understanding that you also required a fundamental understanding of how human decision-making and systems of human decision-making worked. And that coupled with really wonderful technical expertise uh, could be a great recipe for building a company. Uh, and that's a little bit of what we demonstrated at Quid. And then I, the switch over to Square came about because I was constantly interested in threading the needles between my previous experience. And at that point, I'd spent a little bit of time uh, looking at mission-driven technology opportunities at Google. I spent a little bit of time learning how to build businesses. My background was in the study of many parts of the world outside of the Western world. And so at Square, there was an opportunity to come in and help that company build its international presence, uh, which was almost in some ways, it seemed like the perfect job opportunity because it was a unique combination of the things that I had done before. And I was super motivated to go there because um, you know, the company was really born from a strong mission orientation. Jack and Jim believed strongly that they they wanted to build that company to help level the playing field for small business owners. And small and medium businesses are such an important part of the economic backbone of every major economy, especially as it transitions from developing to more developed. Um, so it was very well aligned with my personal theory of change and motivation to make the world a better place. And it was a tremendous place to learn by doing for a couple of years. Okay, great. And then, so you then became a partner on the venture capital team at what was then called Kleiner Perkins Caulfield and Flyers, KPCB, where you were interested in consumer digital and hardware investments specifically. What do you think you learned at KPCB? So my goals at Kleiner were really a little bit different than a typical person that goes into venture capital. I was not one of these people that grew up thinking that I wanted to be a venture capitalist. And my general advice to my uh, the folks that I, I work with these days at Insight is you should be wary of anybody that tells you they want to grow up and be a venture capitalist. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to Kleiner with a clear purpose. At that point in my career, my husband and I had both come into significant amount of capital as a result of our entrepreneurial efforts. We felt a tremendous responsibility to use that capital to create meaningful change in the world. And so I wanted to very intentionally be at a place where I could study by doing uh, what it meant to, to use venture capital as a vehicle for that type of change making. Arguably, there are a few places to go than one of the oldest and most storied venture capital firms on Sand Hill Road and in Silicon Valley. So I went there in large part because you've got essentially, I mean, I'm a historian, right, by training. You have this tremendous treasure trove of data and experience for almost 50 years of venture capital investing at Kleiner. Um, So I worked with the partnership folks that I'd gotten to know because they'd supported our work at Square, they had supported Matt's work at Nest to learn what good venture capitalists did. I got to work alongside some of the best of them, um, some of whom are super well known, others of whom are just really great at their craft and fly uh, beneath the radar, like Brandy Komisar and John Doerr and Beth Seidenberg. Um, and I also got to spend a lot of time 
with our tremendous operations team at Kleiner Perkins, some of whom had been at the firm for 20 or 30 years and could tell us and educate us about, well, this is what happened in the 90s, the historic period that put venture capital on the map. And this is what happened after 2008 or in the early 2000s, the historic periods that um, that were not so great in venture capital. And th this was what made a great investment at that time. Um, this is how we managed investments at a later time. Uh, so I was really lucky because I got to spend two years practicing venture capital, but also learning about what worked and what didn't. And um, when I left, I did so because it was time for us to start Insight.org and take, I think, some of the best of what worked and also some of the opportunities uh, where we I saw uh, room to do things differently and better and put it to work in, um, in Insight. Great. Well, that's great segue into my next question, which is about Insight.org, which you co-founded along with Matt Rogers. Tell me about Insight.org and how it came about. Yeah, so Insight.org came about really because um, Matt and I had made a bunch of money working in tech, and we both felt a tremendous responsibility to take the bulk of that capital and put it back into the work of creating positive social change. And for us, there was a hugely personal motivation in that. Um, I think both of us felt strongly that we had benefited and had tremendous privilege and were very lucky to have access to opportunities that were made possible in large part because other people had taken those kinds of bets. And, and that was a big part of the personal motivation. And then very tactically, the sum of our experiences for the decade prior had been that great, tremendous change could come about in so many variety of vehicles, that you could be an entrepreneur starting a for-profit company, that you could be a really great social entrepreneur starting a nonprofit, like some of the groups that we backed at google.org, and that you could be a kind of hybrid organization. At that point, I was sitting on the board of B Lab and had come to care deeply about B corporations as a motivation for change. Uh, in the wake of the election, we had gotten really passionate about enabling the entrepreneurs behind groups like Flippable and the Arena and Swing Left who are on a real push to fight and restore democracy and enable new types of um, leaders to come up in the country. And so our point of departure for Insight was to say, rather than the tail wagging the dog, so rather than setting up a foundation that was just constrained to backing nonprofits or rather than just running a venture firm which could only invest in companies for ownership, Let's actually focus on the simple principle of using small deployments of rapid capital that could be catalytic and get structured in such a way that you could have a foundation, which we call Insight Labs, to invest in certain types of companies and, non and nonprofits, that you could have an LLC, which we call Insight Ventures, that could actually take ownership positions in companies, and that we'd have a personal pot of money that was there to back political social entrepreneurs. Um, so it was an organization that was designed backwards from the type of impact that we wanted to have in the world. Hmm, so thinking about that impact as something that's really central to Insight, what sort of social change are you currently supporting through Insight? So many different kinds. Sometimes it can be overwhelming for people. I mean, if you look in the portfolio, there's everything from companies that are on the cutting edge of carbon removal, uh, nonprofits that have really pushed the envelope and advocated for paid family leave or voter enfranchisement and democracy reform. You've got robotic, robotics entrepreneurs, you have ag tech entrepreneurs, um, you have female founders, you have founders that are from outside of Silicon Valley. So tremendous range. Do 
you think your focus on social, environmental, political impact makes you very different from other investment funds? Um, I think the focus on super early stage, what we call catalytic, the, the catalytic, catalytic point of enabling a very early stage idea and entrepreneur is what makes us different. Uh, in traditional philanthropy, we tend to see an overabundance of very big programs where um, it takes a very long time to make a decision on whether or not to deploy capital to a social entrepreneur. So the ability to come to the table within the first year of a nonprofit's existence and to say, we will give you a meaningful, unrestricted grant that you can spend however you see fit to kind of go and figure out exactly what you need to do to solve this hard problem is seemingly simple when I describe it to you, but it's actually pretty revolutionary. And on the company side of things, you know, it's a much more common idea that you have seed investors and angel investors that come to the table. But what we find tends to be standalone about our approach is, one, the sectors that we often um, invest in. So we now have one of the biggest portfolios of early stage climate change related opportunities because there just aren't a lot of early stage investors that are willing to make those hard but important bets. And then the second piece of it is, um, founders find it really helpful to have early backing from other founders. So oftentimes it's not just the size of the check that we put to work on the venture side, it's also the fact that they can call and say, hey, I don't know what I need to hire for this role, give me some insight, or I'm gonna go and fundraise. What are the types of things that I should be looking for from the folks that might join my board? Or I'm gonna have my first board meeting, what's a good board meeting? And to be able to have those really tangible, practical conversations with folks that have been there before, um, we find is it's really powerful and it's really helpful. How common is it to get that sort of advice alongside a big check from venture capitalists? Um, you know, in my experience, from even the vantage point that I had at Kleiner Perkins, not as common as it ought to be, surprisingly mm -hmm. enough. I think that there are a lot of very successful venture capitalists that actually haven't had very recent what we call operating experience. They've been in the venture game for so long that you're probably 10 to 20 years out from having had experience working inside of a company. And you know that can be a problem because the ecosystem for operating high growth small companies, some of the principles might be the same, but a lot of the specific dynamics are now totally different. One wonderful example of that is um, the market for talent is fundamentally very different today than it was even 10 years ago. It is a hyper competitive market in Silicon Valley to hire great people. And so the tactics and techniques that you use um, to succeed in that sort of environment, especially you know the nature of building a high risk, high reward company is it, it all rides on the caliber of people. So talent is hugely important. Um, that's a place where talking to folks that have recently lived through that is hugely helpful. And it's not always the case that um, that you're able to find more established venture capitalists that focus on the later stage that necessarily know how to solve for that. And I suppose thinking about the caliber of people, it must be very important to have a good founding team. And you founded Insight with your husband, Matt Rogers. In more general terms, how do you decide who to go into business with? My immediate thought on this is that <laughs> Besides who you end up in life partnership, who you end up in business partnership with is probably one of the most important decisions 
that you can make. And I would actually recommend approaching it with the same degree of seriousness and thoughtfulness that you would who you end up in life partnership with. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, there are absolutely the obvious check boxes on somebody's skill sets and all of those objective measures, but at some degree, what you're evaluating is how well you fit with that person. And um, the part that we're less comfortable talking about is also the normative side of this. What are the values of the person that you're going into business with? And do they value the same things that you do? Do they care about and view the world in a similar way to you? And I think the artful piece of this is figuring out you want someone that pushes your thinking and is complimentary. So I'm not advocating that the choice is about someone that thinks exactly the same way as you, but I think at some core level, you're also looking for someone whose values are very much aligned with yours. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming in to talk to us today. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, it's been my treat. Thanks for asking these questions. To hear more inspirational stories from the Rhodes Ventures Forum 2019, Listen in on my conversations with other speakers in the rest of these podcast episodes. This podcast was produced by me, Christy Callaway-Gale, and brought to you by the Rhodes Trust. The music you heard was called Feeling Sunny by Scott Holmes, provided by freemusicarchive.org. Music